Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 16th episode of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I'm here once again with my co-host, Abby Wilde, who is, as always, very excited to be here. Right, Abby? So excited. Brimming with excitement. So much excitement. My cup runneth over. Excellent. Excited. So, why Abby is so excited, and the reason I'm so excited as well, is because we have a very special event going on today on Pith and Moment, and we are doing a Shakespeare draft. And Abby, would you like to explain a little bit about this while I handle the group text that is uh, in on this draft? I'm going to do my very best because I'm the least sports-minded of the two of us. And <laughs> okay. This is Kyle's idea. So okay, you know, so straight. so I'll just I'll just explain it real quick before okay. we start. Um, basically, now that all of the 2016-2017 seasons have been announced. We are looking forward to the 27-2018 seasons or the 2017 summer seasons and looking at what plays we think will be most produced um, in regional theaters and in summer theaters uh, as far as Shakespeare plays go. Uh, so what we are doing is we are going to draft Shakespeare plays in a snake draft style um, and the idea is to draft the plays that you think will be most produced in 2017-2018 seasons. And once all of the seasons have been announced at the end of next May, the person with the most points wins. And again, you accumulate points when your play is announced in a regional theater or summer theater season. So, we are going to start right now. Um, my friend Park Fetch from grad school has the first pick, and I have just uh, texted him to let him know that he's on the clock. And the way we're doing this is we have a group text with six of us, um, myself and Abby, of course, um, my friend Park Fetch from grad school, who has the first pick, and then um, my friend Liz Livingston, who um, actually auditioned at my graduate school and ended up going to uh, the American Repertory Theater's mm -hmm. um, program uh, with Diane Paulus, uh, like a subset of Harvard, I believe it is. Um, another person involved is Jillian, who some people may know from the podcast. My friend Jillian Wiggin was on the fourth episode with me as we talked about Shakespeare's Kings. Um, she and I met at Virginia Shakespeare Festival. She played the viola to my Sebastian. Aww. Yes, and our headshots look eerily similar. Um, also involved is friend of the podcast, Martine Kai Green Rogers who is a dramaturg on the Play On Project. Oh, fun. Yes. That's awesome. So we have the first pick um, submitted by Park, and the first pick in the draft is Coriolanus. Uh, Park has picked Coriolanus. It's a bit of an be... underdog for a first-round draft, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. Um, but he says uh, there's it's dense and there's a lot of uh, politics involved. Oh, that's a fair point. Yep. So, I mean, and please, with how, how crazy the 2016 election is going to be and how heated and how emotional, maybe he's right. Jillian says, as you like it. Uh, that's number two. The, Jillian's explanation is political upheaval and strong female lead. What do you think about as you like it as the number two pick? I mean, I think that as you like it is always a safe bet. I mean, someone's going to do it. It's a very popular play. As for political upheaval, I don't know that the political upheaval in As You Like It is a resonant enough theme for that to be the cause of its high production, but I think it's a smart pick just because it's uh, such a versatile play. It's so full of the the comedy romance themes that we go to Shakespeare's comedy romances for. I think mm -hmm. it's a solid pick. Great. So, Abby, uh, for the third pick, you are actually on the clock. Uh, I know exactly what I want my first round pick to be, and it is Taming of the Shrew. Uh, I picked Taming of the Shrew in part because it's been rather popular this season, uh, including there's a production coming up at the Delacorte, uh, directed by Phyllida Lloyd, and uh, I, I just find that often New York leads the way in the regional theaters. There have been a few regional productions announced for this previous season that I think are going to be strong enough to ripple outward and resonate with the other smaller regional theaters. I think we're going to see a lot of that in the coming season. Great. Yeah, and Taming of the Shrew is perfect, especially because nobody's been doing it lately, mm -hmm. which means that it's it's due for that sort of breakage of the dam and flooding of the the country of productions of Taming of the Shrew. All the shrews. Bring me all of the shrews. All of the shrews. Okay. 
So now, uh, while we wait for my friend Liz to make her first round pick, um, why don't we talk a little bit about what we've seen so far? I mean, Coriolanus comes in first, and then we have two comedies. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that comedies are always solid choices. There's this, I, I think, myth that comedies are easy to produce, and comedies are certainly always popular with the audiences. People like to pay money to laugh yeah, of much more often than, unfortunately, they like to pay <laughs> money to think about challenging political scenes. People cry enough in their real lives, they don't need to see it on stage. You know, if I could just see a Hamlet that ends with a vaudeville dance routine, I'd be a happy chick. Um <laughs> But I'm really, I'm really interested in that Coriolanus pick, especially because, as we discussed a couple podcasts ago, I don't know Coriolanus terribly well. I know it as the political play full of lots of rhetoric. Sure, yeah. Um, so speaking of comedy, actually, mm. uh, Liz Livingston has just selected The Winter's Tale as her first round pick. Um, she says, happy ending while still exploring a deep psychological life, which is currently popular in contemporary theater. Um, what do you think? I think that that's some really solid reasoning. Um, Winter's Tale, Winter's Tale is a problematic play to produce because it's essentially two plays in one. Uh, it starts out as one play, a very strong moral tragedy, then it becomes a pastoral comedy romance, then it goes back to the moral tragedy with a happy ending. Um, I don't know that I'm convinced that there's a lot going on in the zeitgeist that makes Winter's Tale particularly a good pick for right now. What do you think, Kyle? Well, so I just did a stage reading of Winter's Tale recently, um, and there there aren't really any themes in it that I feel reflect what's going on in society today. Um, but, I mean, there there is a really cool mix of magic and comedy, and it's, it's very episodic, which seems to uh, relate to the way people watch TV nowadays as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's what I think of it. Um, Martine, Martine Green Rogers, uh, friend of the podcast who is, uh, working on the play on project with Oregon Shakespeare picks Julius Caesar. She says politics. And I feel some of the major theaters haven't done it in a while. What do you think? Oh, I think that's a solid, that's a solid choice. That was going to be my second pick. I'm going to have to come up with something better now. Um, but are different. Julius Caesar is in my social circles, uh, and my social circles comprise a lot of Shakespeare geeks, we're talking about Julius Caesar almost without cease uh, in connection to the current political climate. Uh, there have been arguments about whether whether Trump is a Caesar or is Trump Mark Antony, and who is Hillary? Is Hillary Lepidus? Who is Bernie Sanders? Um, I think we're going to see a rash, uh, just an explosion of high concept productions of Julius Caesar over the coming, over the coming seasons, um, especially depending upon what happens in November. But even, you know, even if, even if the election passes with uh, a limited amount of uh, bloodshed and political upheaval, um, just the, the backlash from this, campaign season is, I think, going to keep resonating for so long that we are going to see a lot of Julius Caesar. Cool. Um, so I also just made my first round pick, and I selected Romeo and Juliet. And as I tell everybody that, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you think about it? What I think about Romeo and Juliet, you know, I was listening to the first episode of this podcast on the way here, and Sarah Becker said something interesting about how, uh, how, how many people hate Juliet because they see her as a victim. But what I love about Romeo and Juliet is that it's about two extremely active young people who are completely misunderstood, trod over, shouted down by the previous generation. It's a play, in a, some senses, about the uh, about the the fundamental misunderstanding between the millennial generation and the baby boomers. Sure. I think you could. I, I think that um, the conversations that we're currently having about the responsibility of the next generation and allowing them their own agency and uh, uh, how we, I guess, how, how we establish a new world order given the terrible climates politically, environmentally, socially that were mm -hmm. handed by the previous generation can easily apply to Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I also picked it because it's just stupid common. You know, <laughs> like everybody produces Romeo and Juliet. Pretty and the much. point of this game is to find the plays that we think will be most produced. I think that everybody produces Romeo and Juliet. And then for my next pick, I picked Macbeth. 
for similar reasons. Macbeth is one of the most popular plays in the canon, plus it's about a tyrant king and the tyrant king that murders a bunch of people, and while that character is somewhat of a protagonist, everybody is scared to death right now of Donald Trump, and I have a feeling some theater is going to do some crazy, stupid concept that tries to make a play on, on the political climate. So Can I just say, I love how I was so euphemistic a second ago about Julius Caesar and, you know, the current upheaval, <laughs> and you just go straight to the jugular up, no, we don't want Donald Trump to win. Well, <laughs> controversy, you know, like... No, now you know where we stand at Pith and Moment. We have, we have no secrets. Um, so for the eighth overall pick, um, in her second round, Martine has picked Richard III for the same-ish reason I gave for Macbeth. She says, power struggle and all. Agree? I don't know. I think, um, I, I mean, I think Richard III is a strong choice for a similar reason that you gave for Romeo and Juliet, but just, I, I will never, I will never not pay money to see Richard III. Mm -hmm. Um, it is political <laughs> upheaval, and it is a villain that we love to hate, but I think that I think the challenge of Richard III is that he's he's got that beautiful speech at the end that some way redeems him right before he sails into his death. I don't know. I don't know that I don't know that I buy that there's a stronger reason for Richard III than anything else, though. Great. So Richard III and Macbeth for similar reasons, basically. Plus, they're both very commonly produced plays. You know, we're in that tier right now where mm -hmm. it's pick the common plays that you know are going to be produced somewhere, right? And then we try to go, you know, for the more obscure ones that we believe have something to do with today's society later on and hope that they're produced like once or twice, mm -hmm. right? Um, so with the ninth pick, Liz Livingston takes Hamlet. She says, with a big name, reason, money. Always a solid decision. I yep. mean, we just, what was the most, I think the, I think the most recent big name, big money Hamlet was the Benedict Cumberbatch at, uh, at the National, or was that RSC? Uh, I believe it was the RSC, but we will look at that later, and if we're wrong, we will edit this part out of the podcast. If we're wrong, I sincerely apologize to Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, Liz has a point. Hamlet is similar to Romeo and Juliet. People, people love to see somebody give their Hamlet. Yep. Um, what I'm curious is I wonder if Liz would tell us who she thinks the next Hamlet will be. Uh, because who's who's up next? I think if, if I had to pick, I think Tom Hiddleston is the next one on the block to give to give a Hamlet. What do you think? Uh, you know, it's anybody's guess. Somebody's going to be pulled into a production and we're going to see a Hamlet. We're, we're going to see Hamlet. I mean, and this is not, we're talking regional theaters in America too, mm -hmm. you know? And, mm -hmm, you know, maybe we'll decide to include Broadway in this. I don't know. Um, but as of now, you are on the clock, Abby. So we need to get your pick in. My pick is Richard II. I'm picking Richard II. Damn it, that was my sleeper. <laughs> 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 um, in part because it did just, you know, speaking of famous Hamlets, it did just have a rave-reviewed, sold-out turn at BAM with David Tennant in the titular role. And uh, that is going to, that's going to ripple outwards to the regional theaters. They're going to want to capitalize on the Richard II craze. Um, but also, I, I, I think we're seeing a trend in everybody's picks. Richard yep. II is a play about a monarch who is really good at playing the role of being a monarch, but is not in fact a good monarch. He likes having power. He likes having money. He likes everybody paying attention to him and telling him what a great, wonderful guy he is. And he is deposed by an upstart who actually has the best interests of the country uh, at heart. I, I mean, like, you, you really don't have to try hard to, dry the, to draw the par parallels between the meaning, between what it means to be a king and what it means to be presidential. Um, I'm all about Richard II. You know, and that was like that was what I was going to pick later in this draft because I, you know, the exact same reasons. Somebody who's at the head in a position of power and doesn't really do a good job of anything other than being the the figure, being the person in power. Mm -hmm. um, and has to learn the hard way what it means to actually be a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, so for her next pick, Jillian has selected Comedy of Errors. Um, she says, I can see it fitting in the let's do a really small production with like five actors trend. That's smart. That's a good point. You know, we saw recently at, uh, Theater for a New Audience, um, 
Fiasco's production of Two Gentlemen of Verona, which was a six-actor production. Uh, and there's, uh, there's I, I think there's something inherently delightful about seeing six actors play 30 different roles and see them play them really, really well. Comedy of Errors, you have two sets of identical twins, and mm -hmm. it's commonly done with one actor playing both playing both oh, twins yeah. in a set. Um, I think... I, I don't know. I don't know that that's going to be widespread, but I wouldn't. I'd be willing to bet we'll see at least one solid production of comedy there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's you know it it's a comedy and it's short. Two things that bode very very well with theaters today. Mm -hmm. um, for the twelfth pick, Park takes another comedy, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, again, makes people laugh. It's episodic. It's a crowd pleaser. What do you think? You know, I think that Much Ado is actually going to sleep in this current season because we saw a lot of Much Ado last season. So I think that it's it's on the down cycle. I, you know, I think that Shakespeare plays tend to have like a five or six year um, uh, refractory period before they come back. And uh, just not to say I'm not a huge fan of Much Ado About Nothing in every application, but I'm not sure that I agree with Park. Uh, on this is a solid pick. Really? I actually had it in my top ten. Really? Tell me why. Yeah, um, well, it, again, it's it's a comedy. It's pretty episode. Let's see exactly where I had Much Ado About Nothing, just to be sure I'm not lying. Yeah, I had it as number 11. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, I mean, it's so easy to tell the story. It's, it's funny. You know, Dogberry's got all these cheap laughs coming from his mm -hmm. misnomers, his malaprops, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. um, it's... It's funny, and theaters like to do it, and it, it can fit across many different time periods, fits with many different concepts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so, Park, uh, for the 13th pick, says, Henry IV, Part 1, Rebellious, and I Need to Play Hotspur Soon. So a little bit of personal bias. You know. But it's it's a good pick, I think. Um, that's It's probably one of the more well-written history plays um you know there there's a battle with uh you know a king who's sort of playing the the juvenile playing the delinquent and then suddenly comes into responsibility and ends up on the battlefield in the end of the play for you know fighting for his country and his politics and ends up becoming the hero ends up slaying hotspur spoiler alert oh man yeah i hate it when we spoil 400 year, 400 -year old place um i don't think that's a bad you know there's there was henry the four along with that uh, along with that richard the second at bam recently so i think that that's that's there's there's definitely cause to see that happening but i don't know that you know with so many other more timely plays in the canon i don't know that i would back up henry four part one as occurring more than once in the coming seasons. Ah, uh, I just, it, it seems like one of those plays that you hear about a lot because everybody wants to do it and because Falstaff's such a great character and because all these guys want to play Henry the Four or, or Hal, rather. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Partially, for, for me, it's partly because I've, I've just seen some productions of Henry Four that, I, again, mm -hmm. refractory period, but also for me, Henry Four is one of those plays I hear about much more in class settings than I hear about in sure, season. Sure, that's true too. Everybody does monologues from the Henrys for for class. It is monologue heavy. So many, and they're gorgeous. They're beautiful. And Abby, you are on the clock for your next pick. My next pick is a Midsummer Night's Dream. Ah, okay, ah. that was that was gonna be my. I'm surprised. Midsummer Night's Dream lasted this long. I mean, it is so common. It is so funny. It's, I mean, if we were, Much Ado would be like a poor man's Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, we would think that Midsummer Night's Dream would be so near the top of the list, right? You would think so. I mean, well, Much Ado About Nothing is, like, the, the problems, I think that the problems at the center of Much Ado About Nothing are a little bit, are a little bit more centrally problematic than the ones in, in Midsummer Night's Dream. What's, interesting to me about Midsummer Night's Dream is it's it's an easy play to do well. It's a hard play to do sure. brilliantly. Um, I've seen a lot of good productions. I've seen maybe one that was just amazing. But you know, there's something in it for everybody. Uh, it's I think that it's I think that it's a play that's hard to destroy. Um, <laughs> and I, maybe part of that is that there are so many different 
elements and tones. You have the lovers, you have the fairies, you have the mechanicals, you have Athens, you have the forest. And if you're not super good at the physical comedy and your mechanicals fall flat, you have a chance to be really good at your magical realism with the fairies. You have a chance to be really good at your wonderful fight choreography with the lovers. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen productions that I, I, I've rarely... Hmm. I think that it's very difficult to do a production of Midsummer Night's Dream that is equally as brilliant across the board, but I've seen so many that survived on the strength of their good elements that carried the weak ones. And yeah, everyone, every, it's, it's the Romeo and Juliet comedy. It really is, yeah. Everybody does it. Well, and it's, so I was making my own little rankings for this to make sure I knew how properly I was valuing these plays, and Romeo and Juliet was at the top of my list. Um, and, you know, for number two, it was between Midsummer and Macbeth. And, you know, Midsummer I probably should have taken instead of Macbeth. I just didn't want to take two comedies back to back for some reason. Mm. Um, and it, it, it is the quintessential crowd-pleasing comedy. And it, it's easy to do. It's, it's, I mean, it's got a big cast, so it can incorporate a lot of people, which, I mean... So for high schools and colleges, that's probably better than it is for regional theaters. Regional Fair. theaters are trying more to save money than they are to please big casts. But also, and partly because Shakespeare was writing for a limited, for, for a, a small troupe of actors, it's easy to double. Theseus, Oberon, Hippolyta, uh, Titania is often done. Um, even Aegeus uh, 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 and, uh, and uh, Philostrate coming back as fairies. It's You can... There are ways, and there are certainly ways to creatively cut it. And, you know, it's another one of those plays that's very popular. It's very popular to apply strong and strange concepts to. Mm. Let's do Midsummer Night's Dream, but we'll set it in Woodstock. Let's do Midsummer Night's Dream, but we'll make the the uh, we'll make the lovers run away to the circus and all of the fairies are carnies. Um, mm. Someone brought that into my costume design class in college, and it was the most brilliant, the most brilliant project I ever saw. I was so jealous. I, there, there's, it's a versatile play. Yes, it is definitely versatile. I remember for a while after the Twilight books came out, there were a couple of productions of that used was. Midsummer Night's Dream with vampires. Of course they did. Yeah, of course they did. Um, so with the next pick, um, Liz Livingston picks The Tempest, and she says, for its escapist qualities and magic. And now I'm doing a little catch-up. Uh, Martine with the pick after that, number 17, picks Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, she says, I haven't seen it in a while, so theaters looking to help people complete their Shakespeare canon will want to do it. And I think we're at the point in this draft where it's that's actually a really valid set of logic. What do you think? Um, uh, you know, Merry Wives is one of those plays that I, I don't know as well as some others, and in part because it is so rarely produced. It's... You know, I think it would be more popular to do if uh, that Henry IV Part One uh, comes through as a strong pick, because Henry, Mary Wives of Windsor is the play that Shakespeare wrote when the Queen said, I love Falstaff, write another play about him. Um, it's, But it's not a strong play in terms of, in terms of message and in terms of structure. Uh, I, I think... You know, I, 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 for me, I think that Mary Wives is one of those plays about which... We can say about some plays, well, we're going to see more, um, we're going to see more Richard II because we haven't seen some for a while and it's due, but I don't think that Merry Wives is a play to which that applies. I think that there are some plays that we don't see much of because they're hard and frankly not as good as others. Shakespeare was a genius, but not all of his plays were, 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 were um, unqualified successes. Uh, as for the Tempest, because magic, um, sure, certainly. I, I, you know, I don't think I've seen a lot of Tempest recently. I think that the Tempest is one of those plays about which you can say, I haven't seen it recently, therefore it is due. I don't. I. I worry that the. Um, I worry that the theme central to the Tempest of uh, of, of puppet mastery and of uh, revenge, certainly, but also of. Uh, the orchestration of uh, the orchestration of a theatrical catharsis of your life. But I, I don't know that those that those themes are more directly resonant to where we are as 
a society, specifically in America, for American regional theaters, uh, as some others are. I think that The Tempest would be overshadowed by some of the picks higher on this list. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting to me that The Tempest, though it includes many things that are similar to Midsummer Night's Dream, court life versus wilderness life, uh, magic, um, lovers, uh, it does not have the Midsummer Night's Dream quality of being produced by everyone. It's a messy play. It's yeah. like it, it, it goes off on tangents. Not all of its threads wind together. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think I just made the next two picks in the draft and I would like to move on to those. All right. Cool. Um, so for the 18th pick, I picked Twelfth Night. Um, I'm really actually kind of surprised that Twelfth Night lasted this long. Um, it's, Wait, uh, Kyle, are you the next two picks? Because you did two picks in a row back here. I did, and I did the next two picks just now. So okay. I will talk about them both at this time, um, or we will talk about them both, as it were. Um, Twelfth Night, again, it's just one of those funny, episodic comedies that sort of... It's easy for theater companies to produce because it's it's the way people watch TV, you know? Hmm. Um, I'd never thought about it that way. About I've never thought about Shakespeare in terms of episodes and being uh, being being... Netflixable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Twelfth Night. I, I think that Twelfth Night is one of those. I think that Twelfth Night is one of those plays, quite honestly, that's often mistakenly taken for easy, and it's not. I think it's contrary to Midsummer Night's Dream. It's quite easy to do Twelfth Night badly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another reason it's probably lasted this long, um, like we're halfway through the canon now, and Twelfth Night was still on the list, and it's it's difficult to cast. Because you need a male and a female that can be mistaken for each other, right? And especially if you're doing, a, a, you know, Shakespeare in repertory, you have to figure that in to your other place. So you've got to not only find two people who look like each other and have the the souls and the, the nest to play these roles, but that well, it also... It depends how committed you are to having a strict interpretation of uh, Viola and Sebastian's identicalness. You know, when I played Viola, uh, my Sebastian was like six inches taller than me and super broad-shouldered with a narrow face. Like, we just looked nothing alike. But it totally worked because um, because the, the tone of the play as we'd established it was one in which you believed that these characters... You... you the, the fun of the play was such that it carried you past your suspension of disbelief. Okay. Where where was this? Where this did... was at the La Cunada Flint Ridge Shakespeare Festival in 2012. Uh, we did a production of Twelfth Night in rep with a three-person Romeo and Juliet called Juliet and Her Romeo. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, it was a lot of fun. The last line of the play. So what was your um, next pick after so Twelfth Night? The next pick after Twelfth Night, I picked The Merchant of Venice. Um, and I just think there there's a lot of... Um, <laughs> There's a challenge to this play, right? Mm -hmm. um, the challenge is, how do we make this play politically correct? Or how do we not make it politically correct I mean, and raise the question? Sure. Yes. How do we make a statement, really? I mean, and not that the point of theater is to make a statement, but um, it's there's an interesting element to this, which is how do we do this play and make this old theme of, you know, blatant discrimination or blatant, um, prejudice. almost, yeah, prejudice, yes. I wasn't going to say anti-Semitism because it doesn't go that far, but blatant oh, prejudice. It oh, it's definitely anti-Semitism. Well, it is, but that's another thing that theaters try to do with this play nowadays, and it's how do we make Shylock sympathetic so that the play is not itself anti-Semitic. There are just anti-Semitic themes that the play makes a statement against, you know? We're going to You're have You're on the a, clock, by the way. Yeah, we're going to have a podcast about uh, about Merchant of Venice sometime soon so we can discuss this in further detail. But but my stance on Merchant of Venice, which I love, by the way, I wrote one of my favorite papers in college about it, is that um, the Merchant of Venice is, uh, is a play full of characters with deep flaws designed to hurt everybody else. Okay. And the characters with whom you're meant to sympathize, the lovers, are deeply anti-Semitic. And the character who is supposed to be the villain and who does terrible things, I am by no means saying that Shylock was justified in what he chose to do, but he's also terribly sympathetic in what happens to him. So I think the stance you have to take is, do I want to solve that discrepancy? Mm -hmm. So after Merchant of Venice... Hold on. Martin so I'm just going to introduce the next two picks real quick. Martin's picked Two Gentlemen of Verona because 
people have been interested in using it for our all-female cast and for the social commentary it provides. I think that's a cool reason. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a bit. Liz picks All's Well That Ends Well. And then, Abby, your next pick is... King Lear. King Lear. It's a really good choice. That would have been my last pick if I hadn't picked Merchant of Venice. Um, so now that you've made your next pick, I'm going to let Jillian know that she is on the clock. I picked King Lear because I think it's the converse... Or not the converse, but the parallel to Hamlet, and that it's um, you know when you're a, when you're a young famous person, everybody wants you to do Hamlet, and when you're an old famous person, everyone wants you to do Lear. So for money purposes, I'm sure there's going to be a theater that's going to put up a very a star-studded King Lear. Uh, I don't I don't think that Lear is particularly more resonant now than it would have been five years ago. I think that Lear is one of those plays that for me never stops having something to say. So as for the picks before it, then, um, we, Martine's explanation for two gents basically says it all. Do, do you have anything else to add to that? Not at all. I, uh, in fact, I did an all-female two gents, uh, ah. not long ago, 2014 at the Red Monkey Theater Company up in the Bronx, which was a lot of fun. But yeah, it's, um, and it's a play that raises, that, that raises important questions about, uh, ownership and agency and, and, um, sexual politics i i think she's i i think those things will never stop being born great um for the next pick jillian took titus and she says i think people are going to be ready to go really dark and bloody absolutely that was one of my picks actually <laughs> like I'm, I'm so bummed yeah people titus what i love about titus is that it's so like it's just it, it's so tongue-in-cheekly gory and violent like i always want to see it produced like a like a tarantino movie well like blatantly though like there is it is the saw of yeah the the, the 17th century or the 16th century depending on where totally where it no it's just there, there's a point in that play where it, it becomes very clear that from that point onward we're just going to revel in how bloody and violent and 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 uh no holds barred we can be and it's so much fun um <laughs> it is especially if you're if you're in the mood where you're deeply dissatisfied with the structure of your world sometimes you just want to see <laughs> somebody just make torn the apart world yeah burn, man and in fact I, I just saw the humanist project in new york do titus and the shakespeare forum is getting ready to do a production of titus andromeda yeah well, so yeah the ball is already rolling on that um so while Park is uh, on the clock for the number 24, number 25 overall picks, let's just talk about what we've seen so far. I mean, we're we're basically nearing the end of plays that <laughs> most people have heard of, right? Yeah. Like the average person, once we get past this point, like let's just look at some of the, the plays that we have left on the list here. And we have stuff like Pericles, uh, you know, the random histories like the war of the roses cycle pieces that nobody produces sure, you know the, the henry the sixth the um we have like you know some more obscure comedies we have measure for measure left um but then like it's the bottom of the barrel time of athens king john and then the plays like that the i plays of dubious authorship yes yes so what we've seen so far in the first round other than this surprise coriolanus we have just seen very, very popular Shakespeare plays, you know, As You Like It, Taming of the Shrew, Winter's Tale, a lot of comedy, and then we have Julius Caesar. Um, so just to recap, so far it was Coriolanus, As You Like It, Taming of the Shrew, Winter's Tale, Julius Caesar, Romeo and Juliet in the first round. And then in the second round we have Macbeth, Richard III, Hamlet, Richard II, Comedy of Errors, and Much Ado. Round three was Henry IV Part One. Uh, Othello, Midsummer Night's Dream, The Tempest, Merry Wives of Windsor, and Twelfth Night. And round four was Merchant of Venice, Two Gents, All's Well That Ends Well, King Lear, Titus Andronicus, and then Park has taken Love's Labor's Lost. He says, witty characters and haven't seen it much. What do you think? I... I, I'm, I'm not convinced. Love's Labor's Lost is, you know, we, we talked about on the Heroin on the New Spectrum, we talked about uh, Shakespeare's greatest hits plays versus his proto-plays. And Love's Labor's Lost is a total proto-play for Much Ado About Nothing. Um, so I suppose you could make the argument that if Much Ado About Nothing is going to be prevalent in the coming seasons, then Love's Labor's Lost will be prevalent for the theaters that want to set themselves apart. But it's, you know, it's one of his... It's it's one of his me more his messier plays in terms of structure. 
Um, it, it, it's, it doesn't leave itself, it, it's not, I think, as open to interpretation as some others. It, it just, I, whenever I see Love's Labor's Lost in a season, I've always felt like it's a gap filler. Like it's a, it's a, it's the, the play that we produce between our star-studded Hamlet and our no-holds-barred Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced about Love's Labor's Lost, personally, but what about you? I, I mean, I... It, first of all, Love's Labor's Lost is my second favorite play, so I'm a little bit biased. But, like, <laughs> honestly, like, what else are you going to pick over Love's Labor's Lost at this point? We just talked about how barren the, the, the rest of the list is. Yeah, there's some other stuff, man. All right. Well, speaking of other stuff, you are on the clock. Park picked Henry V for his twenty for the 25th overall pick. And then Jillian has Measure for Measure because she says, Purity versus reality, extremism, plus some good old-fashioned sexism. Seems timely. Oh, yeah, good old-fashioned sexism cannot go wrong. Um, I think that my next pick is going to have to be Pericles. Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Explain. Um, it's rarely done. Uh, it recently had a bit of a resurgence here in New York, so I think that that might resonate outward into the regional theaters. Pericles uh, is, you know, I, the first time I saw it, I thought that it was Shakespeare's version of it was uh, Shakespeare's version of Oedipus. Um, that he has <laughs> he has one hero, he has a hero show up in town, solve a riddle, win the hand of a princess, and then terrible things happen to him until finally he is redeemed at the end. It's a difficult one to do well, but when it's done well, it's beautiful. I think that this is more wishful thinking on my part. I would like <laughs> to see more Pericles. Well, and again, like, with Pericles, like, at this point, what else are you going to pick? Like, we're, we're getting down to plays that not only do people not produce, but, like, 97% of the population is, is never heard of. You know, mm -hmm. you say King John, and people are like, oh, wait, that's Shakespeare? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean... We are scraping at this point, so wishful thinking is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, I, I made a list of my own rankings for what I would pick before the podcast started, mm -hmm. and like the like literally all of the my top twenty three selections have already been taken. You know, and, and we are we are down to to the back half of the canon. And it was weird; I didn't expect them to go off the board in the order that they did. Mm -hmm. But we like. These are plays that have we've probably seen, you know, like a marquee or a billboard or a poster or a flyer for or a Facebook ad for. Mm -hmm. I don't remember seeing Facebook ads for hardly any of the remaining plays in the last couple of years, you know? So, uh, sure, totally. Uh, for the for the next pick, Liz has taken Henry the Sixth Part Three. Hmm. Of all the, you know, you know why that's smart is that it's the setup for Richard the Third. Mm -hmm. um, yep, and it is, it's, it is. I think the the bloodiest of the War of the Roses cycle plays. Uh, but I'm I'm curious. I'm curious what her reasoning was, because oh, she says Henry the Sixth Part Three. Margaret is a badass. Yep, that was <laughs> can't disagree. Cannot disagree with mm -hmm. that. And so, it's one of the better history plays. It really is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. I don't know much about the plot of it. I just know that it's it's produced fairly often in relation to um, in, to the rest of the history plays. And you, like you said, it is the precursor for Richard the Third, so mm -hmm. maybe that is um, there is correlation with that. But I remember American Shakespeare Center did a production of Henry the Sixth Part Three a few years back, and it actually like got rave reviews. Like they and American Shakespeare Center is a great company, but the fact that they did it so well, and the fact that it was received so well also says something about the play, you know? For the next pick, Martine picks Troilus and Cressida, because she says, I wrote my MA thesis on it, which, at this point, that's a valid reason, right? But, you know, that was going to be my next pick, and the reason why being that uh, Daniel Sullivan is about to direct it at the Delacorte in the park, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm so excited to see what he does with it. Uh, Troilus and Cressida is rarely produced because it's a messy play with a lot of a lot of internal problems and very little resolution. Um, it's for those not familiar. Why wouldn't you be? It's Shakespeare's play about the Iliad. It's uh, he he explores 
pretty much all of the characters, uh, all of Homer's favorite characters in the Iliad, except for the gods. The gods are not present. Um, and it's kind of just this slice of life of this broken world where there's been this endless war for six years and we're all questioning our reasons for going into it. And we're all deeply resentful of the fact that we're here and that the choices of our leaders have brought us here. Um, so I don't know what in that would be resonant to today's audience, but uh, it's not its not outside the realm of possibility for Troilus and Cressida to have a resurgence in the coming year. Mm-hmm. Um, so for my next pick, I actually picked Antony and Cleopatra because it's its a similar play. Yeah. Honestly, like it's, it's one of those love and war stories. It's the, the play that people are going to do if they're not going to do Julius Caesar or Romeo and Juliet or Troilus and Cressida because it's kind of a weird, crazy, messed up combination of all three. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, Cleopatra is a great, great female character. And there's there's been a lot of stuff in the media lately on how, you know, there need to be more good roles for females. I saw, like, a couple of articles pop up in the news mm-hmm. recently just about females talking about how they wish there were more good roles written for females. And I think it's just going to be one of those popular plays with a strong female character, especially because we need to start paying more attention to that in the Shakespeare world. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I picked Cymbeline, quite simply, because Shakespeare in the Park produced it last year, and I think a lot of people are just going to try to jump on the bandwagon. You're taking all my picks, Scott. <laughs> well, really pleased. Uh-oh. I'm really displeased. And pleased. Um, Cymbeline, I, you know, I was just reading it last week uh, for other purposes, and Cymbeline is... Just as you were just talking about, it's it's got one of the stronger um, female characters in the Shakespearean canon. Uh, as we discussed in episode 13, The Heroine Ingenue Spectrum, Imogen does it all, and she has such a tremendous arc. Um, it's certainly a play with problems. There are sections, as we discussed in Deus Ex Machina, there's this great pageant of the gods that gets cut all the time because it does not add anything to the story. It slows everything down. I think it's probably difficult to make interesting. Uh, it's got, you know, it's a very strong pick as well because uh, it has elements of comedy, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, it, 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 it's Shakespeare's greatest hits play. You have long lost brothers, you have mistaken identity, you have a woman in pants, you have, uh, the jealous husband, uh, who, who takes the evidence of a handkerchief. You have, um, the scheming villain who doesn't really have a reason to be a scheming villain, but he's awful. And yeah, Iago is not that far cry from Yakimo in terms of spelling. Um, yeah, and phonetics. And phonetics. Um, but, uh, and it's got something in it for everybody. Um, I think that it's, uh, and I think that it's an underutilized jewel in the canon. Yes. Well, and it, it definitely, it's, so it's Shakespeare's longest play, mm-hmm. and it's it's a really, really good story. It's so and good. It's kind of like, it's, it's weird how it twists from like a fairy tale into like a tragedy almost, but it's not even a tragedy because... I don't know. It's one of the problem plays. You know, we don't know how to classify it. But it has elements of fairy tale and elements of farce and elements of history and elements of tragedy. And it ends with this delightfully extenuated denouement scene where all of the characters stand around telling each other what happened as they explain how they all got here. And it's a gorgeous wrap-up. Um... I, uh, it's, I, I think I said this on a previous podcast, it kind of reminds me of, uh, it's, it's a Dickensian Shakespeare play, in that uh, it starts out being one story, when he gets tired of telling that story, he starts another thread, and then another thread, and then another thread, and then at the end, he wraps all of the characters' stories together in this beautiful tapestry, and everyone comes out for and a it works! Like, yeah. it's really weird how it works. It's yeah. just, it's a very well-written play. Didn't we call it something like Shakespeare's Greatest Hits play or that something? That we did, Yeah. yeah. So for the 32nd pick, uh, Martine takes Timon of Athens, and she says, OSF is doing it now, so I think others will jump on the bandwagon. I think, again, like, any reason's a valid reason at this point, but, like, that's that's a really good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at this point in the draft. I don't know Timon of Athens at all, by which I mean I know that I've read it, and I've forgotten it completely. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even, like, honestly, I don't even know what happens in that play. And, you know, maybe that's as good of a reason as any to do it. I suppose. I I would, hmm, I'd be curious to see if any uh, Shakespeare, 
any any Shakespeare playhouses have the guts to do a Shakespeare's forgotten for, forgotten plays season where all they do are the ones that nobody sees because the 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 um the downside is that everyone will walk away knowing why nobody does those plays. They're boring, <laughs> problematic, and messy. You can't do that right. Or, but, like, the, the, that's the risk. But the possible reward is that you bring new life to Time and of Athens. Um, so, Abby, you are on the clock for your last pick. And you have basically the leftover pieces of the War of the Rose cycle <laughs> and the Apocrypha to choose from. So what would you like to take? I'm going to pick Double Falsehood. Okay, interesting. Um, why? A double falsehood is, it, you could describe it as uh, the darker side of Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is already pretty dark. Um, but for all of the same reasons that we have Two Gentlemen of Verona higher up the list, it's uh, sexual politics, it's strong female characters, it's, um, it's a, it's a problem, and you know what? It's, A, it's, it's apocryphal. Um, there's deeply divided scholarship over how much, if any of it, Shakespeare wrote. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, so it's, it's both controversial subject matter and controversial to produce. Uh, and you know, I am on the fence about whether I, uh, whether I even like this play, but it's got that, that tempting task in the center of it of, of, can I make this draft this this like this kind of sketch of a play cohesive and strong and and to tell a valid story yeah well then that's the problem too to can can this play tell a valid story and i i don't i literally know absolutely nothing about this play the mm -hmm. first time i found out it was a shakespeare play was three years ago when i saw the arden version of it and i was like what mm -hmm. what is this um, and I've honestly never heard of a theater doing a production of it. Well, um, you know, the Letter of Mark Theater Company here in New York in Brooklyn just uh, did a year-long a year long process culminating in a run at the Irondale Center um, a couple months ago. And it was a really strong, beautiful production. You can tell that they spent a lot of time sitting, uh, sitting on the humanity of all of these characters. But they filled the characters with... They, they filled the characters with, with so much human sim sympathy that for me it illuminated, I think, a fundamental flaw in the writing of the play, which is that it, is, is that the, the villain is also kind of the central character. So mm -hmm. you have a play okay. that's a tragedy about a man who's had the misfortune of raping somebody. Ah. And I think that the way that it's written, the victim does not get enough to say about it and, and and is marginalized and also in the in the model of Shakespeare comedies everybody gets married at the end and she marries her rapist it's <laughs> very very difficult and they did not even they god bless them i like i applaud this choice that they made a choice that they would not be okay with them getting married at the end like it was a it was a tragic moment. We all, like, all of the characters on stage were standing there hating it as the announcement came out that this is what was going to happen. Um, and so you just, you left the theater angry about life and romance and, and, and Shakespeare, which is, I think, a perfectly valid, uh, a perfectly valid goal to send your audience out angry and discussing. Uh, so... To, to cut in a little bit, Park has finished off the, uh, or Jillian and Park, I should say, have finished off the draft at this point, um, and Jillian has taken Henry VI Part Two because she says it's there and I'm taking it. Good. Um, and then Park has taken Henry VI Part One because he says, why not complete the trilogy? And also Joan. Um, also Joan. <laughs> yes. Well, and, you know, as long as you were talking about strong female characters earlier, then, like, why not go with Joan, who is probably one of the, the strongest women in history, right? She's, but what's fascinating about Shakespeare's Joan is that Joan is, uh, one of, is definitely one of the strongest women in history, and she's treated with such humanity and strength and brilliance in George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. Shakespeare's Joan of Arc is a villain. She's a witch. She's crazy. She has, or she's, she's manipulative. She's a sociopath. She's, she's just, she's, she's just not... <laughs> she is not a heroine or an ingenue or like she she's she's definitely a mess <laughs> and you know her final scene 
where she's she's sentenced to death then she goes to like four different tactics including you can't you 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 can't execute me i'm holy uh no you're not you can't execute me i'm pregnant we don't care you can't execute me i'm pregnant with a royal baby like she just she's 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 a fascinating wriggling enigma i like her um so we have now completed i mean we haven't taken the entire canon but we have 36 out of 40 plays that we believe Shakespeare was at least a part author of, right? Mm -hmm. 37 plays in his traditional canon and the three Apocrypha. Um, and just to review the last two rounds, um, we had Park with the number 25 pick taking Henry V, Gillian taking Measure for Measure, you took Pericles, and then Liz had Henry the Sixth, Part Three. Martine had Troilus and Cressida, and then I had Antony and Cleopatra. And then after that, it was Cymbeline, Timon of Athens, King John, Double Falsehoods, Henry the Sixth, Part Two, and Henry the Sixth, Part One. Now, I just want to take a, just a second to point out the the plays that weren't selected. The leftovers. Yes, the leftover scraps. Uh, King Henry the Eighth. Mm -hmm. um, which I thought somebody was just going to take just for the same reasons we talked about Macbeth and Richard III and and um, Richard II, mm -hmm. you know, with the whole politics theme. and Sure. Yeah. Um, and also we have Henry IV Part Two, which I also thought might have been taken over some of the plays that were taken just because Henry IV Part One was taken so early that y you would think that mm -hmm. so many, that many theaters producing Part One would produce part two later but then maybe they thought they would produce them in the 2018-2019 season fair i'm super surprised that the henry six trilogy went before the henry four i know yeah um and then we have two noble kinsmen and edward the third left over in the junk pile um and just in case anybody's curious where i had them in my rankings <laughs> i had henry the eighth as number 32 henry the fourth part two as number 33 Two Noble Kinsmen at 38, and Edward III at 40th. Yeah, so there's, those are not high in your list of hopes. No, and, you know, after, like I said, after we got past the third or fourth round, it was th throw a dart. After Have a we reason. got past the third or fourth round, it was kind of like, it was kind of a battle to get the ones that were the least sucky before exactly. anybody Exactly, yes, yeah. So it, it, at first it was like, <laughs> let's all be creative. Let's all pick the, the really good plays that we think you know, are really strong candidates to be produced this year. And then once it gets down to the end, it's just like, what is the the least crappy play that somebody <laughs> might have an idea to try to make work? Because the, the reason so many people, you know, want to produce Shakespeare is, A, I mean, I'm sure they're trying to make a profit, but B, it's, it's about getting an audience to see Shakespeare and enjoy it. Yeah. Right? Get, bringing Shakespeare into the world. And how are you going to do that when... Like, you're not right using Shakespeare's best work. Yeah, I mean, you know, for a play like Timon of Athens or King John, it's hard to bring in an audience that isn't already familiar with Shakespeare. I I, I think that it would be a difficult proposition to convince, to, to make a case for somebody's first Shakespeare play being King John or Timon of Athens. That's for somebody who's started out on Midsummer and Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth and now feels comfortable in the world of this of this dramatist. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. This... That was, that was tough. It was kind of amazing. So, like, Ooh. basically this whole time, uh, I've been trying to, to track my phone and make sure that I'm telling everybody who is up and trying to, to make lists and keep track of everything and just sort of looking to Abby to be like, hey, please... Talk about talk, talk while I can't talk, basically. It's just really, like, until you've done something like this, you realize it's really difficult to multitask. Yeah, you guys you guys didn't see, but Kyle was doing an amazing job juggling... Kyle's <laughs> been doing an amazing job juggling multiple windows of his lists of the entire canon, his list of all of our brackets. <laughs> uh, he has his messages open on his laptop and on his phone, so he can look at, like, five of them at once. I mean... Uh, it's it's an impressive proposition. I'm hoping that we can turn all of this information, though, into some sort of a Zodiac Killer style, <laughs> like, corkboard on Kyle's wall, where you can cross things out. It'd be great. Well, it's, it is going to be fun. Like, for the next, like, six months, probably this game will be quiet and we'll forget about it. And then as theaters start to announce their seasons, 
we will be able to actually like you know mm-hmm. do updates on like who's winning, what plays have been selected most, were we right or were we wrong, and sure. who knows? Maybe some of the artistic directors will lend their insight into why they selected these plays, and we can compare them to some of our reasons. Um, real quick, I just want to run down everybody's um, selections, right? So Park has taken Coriolanus, Much Ado About Nothing, Henry the Fourth Part One, Love's Labor's Lost, Henry the Fifth. And Henry the Sixth, Part One. So Park has a lot of histories, and because I know Park very well, I'm going to say that he also has many plays that have fights in them. And <laughs> Park is uh, Park is a stage combat guy. Oh, I um, see. Yes, he is. You know, SCAFD certified in all sorts of things, and, and knows more about fight choreography than I will ever. Mm-hmm. He's forgotten more about fight choreography than I will ever learn in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think about uh, Park's selections? Well, I don't think that Park is... You know, I mean, I think it's interesting how people's predilections pop up in their bracket choices, but I don't think that... I think that even if it's subconscious, Park's selections on the basis of uh, the most interesting fights is yeah. a, re- a really solid reasoning because, God, a well-done fight scene in a Shakespeare play, it just brings down the house. Well, and you know, so a fight is a story that, or like a dance that illustrates violence and tells a story. Absolutely. Right. Um, Jillian has taken As You Like It, Comedy of Errors, Othello, Titus Andronicus, Measure for Measure, and Henry VI, Part Two. Kind of a mixed bag, yeah. actually. I think I'm not seeing I'm not seeing the through line there, I, which is really pretty cool because she's playing she's playing the field. She doesn't have. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that Jill, I'm sure Jillian has a strategy, but it's well, you know, and honestly, like maybe by looking for patterns, we're we're overstretching our imaginations because the the point in this was basically to just you know, pick the next best play on the board. Yeah, but know? we're actors. It's our job to look for patterns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Long stretches of text. Um, and so, Abby, yeah. you have taken Taming of the Shrew, Richard II, Midsummer Night's Dream, King Lear, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, and Double Falsehoods. Uh, looking at that from the outside, what, uh, what do you have to say? I mean, I think that with the possible exception... No, actually, actually, now that I think about it, not at all with the exception of Pericles. Uh, I, I think the two things that I'm exploring the most in my draft pick are uh, are are, are um, governmental politics and sexual politics. Taming of the Shrew, Midsummer Night's Dream, Pericles, and Double Falsehood all are all about. Uh, are all about sexual yeah, politics. Yeah, yeah, definitely. King Lear and Richard II are all about what it means to be a monarch, what it means to be in charge, about responsible responsible government. Uh, I don't think that I set out to do that as I was pretty much building <laughs> my list as we went, but I, I'm proud of myself and my ability to be spontaneously cohesive. Yay me. Um, so Liz took The Winter's Tale. She took Hamlet, The Tempest, All's Well That Ends Well, Henry the Sixth, Part Three, and King John. Uh, what do you think? Liz picked heavy hitters. Um, yeah. Even King John, which is one of the lesser produced ones, is is in a few ways a proto play for Lear uh, with the bastard, mm-hmm. um, and uh, is is a difficult a difficult political drama to do. Uh, Liz's play, I mean. Winner's Tale, Hamlet, The Tempest, those are three majorly, majorly produced plays. Um, yeah, she actually has a really good looking um, set of plays right here. She does. I've got my money on Liz. <laughs> um, so Martine has Julius Caesar. She has Richard III, Merry Wives of Windsor, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Troilus and Cressida, and Timon of Athens. Mm-hmm. And just looking at her first couple, I mean, Julius Caesar and Richard III, um, it's interesting how most people went comedy with one of their first two picks. Yeah. And she just picked really popular and heavy-hitting tragedies, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, you know, she went to Merry Wives and Two Gents with her, with her next two picks. Um, so, you know, kind of balancing that out. But, you know, it's Richard III... 
it's a really, really good choice. And Julius Caesar is really, really popular play, especially with how often it's it's produced in schools. You know, sure. regional theaters want to pick that play to produce because they know schools will be reading it at the same time and maybe sure. they will go to see the production. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and then last, my roster, as it were, is Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth, then Twelfth Night and Merchant of Venice, and Antony and Cleopatra, and Cymbeline. I mean, I like I said, I just, like, right off the bat, I just went for two plays that I, you see the names everywhere, mm-hmm. you know? They were both still left on the board, and I was like, well, if I can... If I can get really good numbers with these two plays, then with my next, like with my last picks, I can just sort of take some more risks and, you know, based on what I, I think the, the political and social climate is. I think you did really well with your picks. In part, like your first three are, I think, uh, top candidates for people's first Shakespeareans. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. You know, most people, like Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, Twelfth Night are really easy plays to get into as an audience member for a variety of reasons. Um, and Merchant of Venice, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, and, and uh, well, Merchant of Venice and Antony and Cleopatra are, I think, more commonly produced than a lot of the other plays on this list. Cymbeline is, I think, your riskiest choice, but I think it's like, it's it's quite, it was one of my picks before you, you wantonly stole it from me. And I, I <laughs> well, mean, it was my last pick, so you had plenty of opportunities. This is not about me. <laughs> Um, it's the one that I, it's the one that I have the highest hopes for. I really hope you get that one. <laughs> well, and you know, like I said, like, it's a really good play and I'm not, you, you saw it at Shakespeare in the Park, right? I did not. I did. Um, it's gorgeous, by the way. Great. And you know, hopefully the fact that it is such a good play and a well-known theater company has done it so well, mm-hmm. hopefully that will just sort of start to to stir up some interest in the play because I know you and I both have a soft spot for Cymbeline. Yeah. Um, especially because Imogen is such, such a really complex character. I think like we, one of us referred to her as like perhaps the female Hamlet. Uh, yeah, Um, yeah, definitely. mm -hmm. And, uh, we also came to the conclusion a couple podcasts ago that she has the wonderful, the, the wonderful task to begin as an ingenue and end up as a heroine. Yes. Yep. Um, She's a joy to watch. She's done well. Well, as um, as we wind down to the end of the podcast, I just want to let everybody know if you what what we're going to do next is I'm going to basically spend the rest of the day. This includes all regional theaters, right? All Lort theaters that are of Lort status, mm-hmm. in as you know, as outlined by the rules of Equity um, Actors Equity Association. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to compile a list of other plays that I think should be included with this. You know, off-Broadway houses, summer Shakespeare festivals, and basically we will have until the next two months to complete this list. So listeners, if any of you, like I will put up a Google document, I will link to it on the Facebook page, and I will have the list of all the theaters so we can track them as Mm -hmm. the seasons come out. Mm -hmm. Um, And if anybody sees a theater that it is missing that they believe should be included please submit that to me or abby and we will add it to the list after careful consideration and in fact within the next couple of months we will have this available for you on the tumblr page uh on the ny shakes guy tumblr page we will have a list of the completed brackets divided by the names of those of us who compiled them and finally as the relevant as the 2017 summer and 2017-2018 uh, season begins, we will be updating that list with uh, with points as they are awarded. Boy, this is going to be a lot more work than I predicted it was going to be. <laughs> no, but this is great. This will be a, a fun way to to. I feel like sometimes when we're on this podcast, we're talking about Shakespeare, and it's all 400 years old, mm-hmm. right? So there is no new information coming out other than like news articles that break every now and then they give us something to talk about but this is something new current and still updating that we can track in real time and they can give us some sort of modern day suspense that we otherwise do not have in shakespeare that's been around for 400 years mm-hmm. um so we will have that information up for you on the tumblr page this is going to be very exciting very fun and at the end of next may 
when the last theater has announced its season or gone out of business, God forbid, <laughs> we will have the uh, final standings. Um, Abby, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, closing thoughts on the segment or closing thoughts on the day? Both. My closing thoughts on the day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm so fascinated to see how this plays out. I, uh, I've never done anything like this before with theater picks, and uh, and those of you that know me won't be surprised to hear I'm a hyper competitive person. So I'm <laughs> going to be on this for the coming months. You have absolutely no idea, and I really look forward to um, hearing from you guys about what you think were the strongest picks, what you think were the weaker picks, what you would have done differently. Kyle, what about you? Yeah, well, so the reason I came up with this was because I really wanted, like I said, something to keep a suspense and, and currency with Shakespeare and also to, you know, bring a little competition into it. And I, you know, I play fantasy baseball. Mm -hmm. I used to write for a baseball website, and so that's just been something I've done. And... I sort of came up with this idea based on that inspiration. So it, it, it will be interesting to see whether it actually, like, wh whether it actually brings about a fierce enough competition to warrant us doing it again around this time next year. Totally. And on a much geekier note, I'm really fascinated by how we're going to track the statistics of the, the statistics of Shakespeare production over the coming season because this will force us as actors and theater professionals to be deeply cognizant of the trends in our business. Yes, and you know that can only be good for us. Right. 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 So um and you know, if you guys want to track this along, please go ahead. Let us know if we've made any mistakes because keeping your eye on what these theater companies are producing can really help you to market yourself and will hopefully help us to market ourselves as well. Absolutely. Great. Uh, well, Abby, would you like to tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you? I certainly would. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wild, or you can find me at my home on the web, www.abbywild.com. Uh, please click around for the videos, the pictures, the resume credits, and if you look under coaching and classes, you can find out how to get in touch with me for private coaching or for, uh, for classes that I'll be teaching starting this June. Kyle? For myself, I'm Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. And for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can visit my website at www.kyledowning.com slash nyshakesky.html. You can also find me on Facebook, nyshakesky, or Twitter or Instagram, at nyshakesky. You can visit my YouTube channel by searching NY Shakes Guy or Kyle Downing. If you have listener questions or you're interested in a coaching, you can send me an email at nyshakesguy at gmail.com. And please be sure to keep an ear out for future episodes of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. You can listen, review, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. For Abby Wild, I'm Kyle Downing. Thanks for listening, everyone, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.